There are over 500 animals on Canada's list of species at risk. One of these is Falco peregrinus, the peregrine falcon. I sang all night, the moon shone on me through the trees. My name is Sean Willett. This is The Red List. No brothers left, and there'll be no more after me. Over the last couple of weeks, my coworkers and I at CJSW have been glued to a live stream. The kind of thing that's usually used to broadcast election results or people playing video games. But this stream isn't broadcasting any sort of events or even people. Instead, it's showing footage taken by a couple of dinky webcams of a roof. Specifically, the roof of a nearby building on the University of Calgary's campus. And on this roof is a falcon, sitting on a nest. She's a peregrine falcon, and her eggs have just started to hatch. The person managing this stream is Irene Wade, and she probably isn't the person you would expect be running a predatory bird nest live stream. She's not a biologist or a conservationist, but instead a library officer working at the U of C. In her words, Basically, I do most of the ordering of the books for the library, and I've been here for about over 30 years, so I won't tell you exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A long time. Irene's been watching the U of C's resident falcons for years, well before the technology existed to stream their antics around the world. I used to sit outside where the TFDL is now. I used to sit out there and have my lunch in the grass in the summertime, and I'd watch them all running along the ledge, you know, and it was really, it was always fun, and they were so loud and noisy. When the UFC Falcon Cam was first set up in 2010 by one of the other librarians, Irene didn't expect the overwhelming response it would receive. The stream has had over 12,000 views this year alone, racking up over 200 days worth of time spent watching over a mere two months. And this viewership has been growing each year. Almost every Calgarian news outlet makes an annual habit of covering the stream, and awareness of these falcons has grown far beyond the realm of just birders and biologists. In a way, these peregrine falcons have become local celebrities, all thanks to a librarian at the U of C. And then she retired and asked me if I'd be interested, because we always used to chat about them, you know, she knew I was interested in just watching the birds. But while Irene is now responsible for the -the behind-the-scenes operations of the stream, its biggest star is still the on-camera talent, if you will. If the stream does have a lead role, then it almost certainly belongs to Callie the female peregrine falcon that's been nesting at the U of C for just over a decade. Gary, her most recent partner, has been with her for most of this time, 
sharing duties brooding the eggs and hunting for the newborns. Every spring, Callie and Gary return to raise a new clutch of chicks, and every year, hundreds of people watch these chicks hatch, eat, and grow before their fairy eyes. Unsurprisingly, devoted viewers have started to get to know the couple quite well. Callie, who was born in the Albertan town of Balzac in 2003, is apparently quite aggressive, uh, for a peregrine falcon, at least. And you can tell the way she bosses, you know, the way she squeaks, screeches the other one. <laughs> Gary, it's quite funny, so they do have personalities. When compared to other peregrine couples, Callie and Gary can seem distant. They're rarely both at the nest at the same time, and confrontations between the two often end with a string of disgruntled screams. But even the most amicable falcon pairs are never really comfortable together. When breeding season ends, the presence of other peregrines usually means competition for food and territory. So for most of the year, other falcons are a threat, a nuisance. Knowing this, it's a little incredible that they manage to get along at all. They have to overcome their natural tendencies to attack or chase off this other predator long enough to let that happen and share, you know, especially when the young come. The female, uh, Callie, is, gets really protective. That was Warren Fitch, a biologist at the U of C, who helps watch over the falcons. Yeah, I'm a technician in zoology in the Department of Biological Sciences. Warren's not really involved with the stream, but he isn't surprised that Callie and Gary draw the attention that they do. The birds are amazing. I mean, you got to be amazed by the abilities of these birds. They're the fastest animal in the world, when it, other than humans in planes. When they fly, um, you just appreciate the amazing abilities of them. You don't really get a chance to appreciate them fully, though, when they're just sort of flying around on campus. To Warren, this is the benefit of a live stream. It lets us see these animals up close in a way that would normally be almost impossible. But for him, there's more to this than just getting a chance to watch some cool birds. And they're amazing for all of those abilities and also their resilience, you know, coming back from such low numbers, now reoccupying spots in cities that they shouldn't really be in. When Warren says peregrine numbers were low, he means low. Before the population crash in the 70s, there were estimated to be over 7,000 peregrines in North America. Afterwards, that number had dropped to a mere few hundred. All around the world, falcons were dying. And it was almost entirely our fault. It's an unfortunate thing for them that we've developed a great pesticide called DDT, back in the 60s and started using it widely to kill off insects that were primarily things that were eating our crops. So we were doing it for good reasons, to increase food and, and that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, we didn't realize that when insects are killed by this stuff, birds eat it. 
and they accumulate those chemicals. And then their body, their liver especially, starts to break that chemical down like it's supposed to, and it makes it into another thing called DDE. And that was the thing where we really messed up. For most birds, the concentration of DDE in their bodies was low enough to not really have much of an effect. But falcons were different. Parakins live for a long period of time, and so as they eat every bird... They eat a lot of birds. They, they only eat birds, <laughs> yeah. And every one of those birds may be infected or concentrating the DDT, and therefore the peregrine actually, because it's at the top of that sort of typical food pyramid, is the one that gets the worst of it. But high DDE concentrations didn't just kill the falcons outright, at least... Not for most of them. Its effects were more subtle and much more devastating. That chemical prevents the calcium from being laid down around the egg. So the eggs are being laid, but they have almost no calcium around them in animals that are highly concentrated with the DDE. And therefore the eggs break with almost no pressure at all. And so there's no eggs, there's no young being hatched. And each year, it's worse because the birds eat more insects, which have had more DDT, and that concentrates more. We, we did a good job in designing the DDT chemical to kill insects, because that's what it did. And it didn't really kill other things, because there were tests and stuff like that. But we didn't look at, as I said, what the DDT is broken down to. We've learned that we have to look much more extensively at a lot of these other things. But for peregrine falcons, this was a lesson that was learned too late. By the time world governments began banning the use of DDT, the global peregrine population had dropped to nearly 10% of its historic numbers. To prevent them from dying out completely, conservationists had to immediately go to work implementing programs to help the peregrines start to regain their former numbers. Well, we started breeding them in captivity, which uh, sounds very easy, but it's not. Now that we know how to do it, it's pretty good. But way back then, it was really uh, just by guess and by God. One of those people was John Campbell, who still does conservation work in and around Calgary. Our survey and monitor nesting populations of uh, raptors or birds of prey John's father was a falconer, back in Scotland. And after moving to Canada, he decided to rekindle his old hobby. But in order to be a falconer, you need falcons. You need peregrines. And he went up north and got birds legally from the Yukon, and when they started to disappear, peregrines that is, he said they're too valuable and put them up for breeding. And he was one of the first people in the world to breed them successfully in captivity. And it kind of went from there. And so, a hobby turned into a rescue mission, with John's father helping to ensure a future for what was, at the time, one of Canada's most endangered animals. This was also the root of John's enduring passion for working with birds of prey, 
While he never received formal training as a biologist, John's first-hand experience breeding falcons with his dad taught him everything he would ever need to know. But even with his father's expertise, breeding a new generation of peregrines was far from a simple task, especially with so many individuals so highly contaminated with DDE. Because you would put birds together and they just wouldn't do anything, or they would do some displays, or they would lay eggs and they wouldn't be fertile. It was really um, quite frustrating. But eventually eggs did start to hatch. And John and his dad were faced with a new challenge, one that all captive breeding programs must eventually face. They had to reintroduce these animals to the wild. Well, ideally, what we like to do is put them with an, under an existing pair, so we augment. And originally, that's what they used to do. When the birds first started nesting, and the original pair that nested in downtown Calgary, which actually my father bred for, for interest's sake, but they were too hot. They had too much pesticides in them to be able to reproduce. So we would put young under them. The pair also released animals using hawk sites, an old falconry technique that uses a nest box to slowly get falcons used to living on their own. So you get them till they're almost ready to fly, and then you put feed into them. You make sure that they can't see people initially, and once they, you leave them in for a week or 10 days or so, and then you, you know, they're, they're in a box, they're in a cage, and then you open the front of it, and they can come and go at will, and you keep feeding them until they don't show up anymore. Well, they're fully acclimatized. As more falcons were released and more started to successfully breed, John and other conservationists began setting up more nest boxes out in the wild, sites where the peregrines could safely lay their eggs and raise their young. But of course, as with every other part of the falcon reintroduction process, this wasn't quite as simple as it sounded. They choose the location first, and then they try and find somewhere to nest, and then we quite often come in after the fact. But the locations the falcons started picking were unusual. They weren't nesting in forests, or plains, or mountains. They were nesting in cities on the roofs of the tallest buildings they could find. We're an analog for cliffs, and that's what they need for their nesting, um, is cliff sites, and that those are rare on the prairies. At first, this nesting behavior baffled biologists. All around the world, falcons were choosing to live in cities, side by side with the species that almost wiped them off the face of the earth. But in a way, it does make sense. As Warren said, tall buildings are a lot like cliffs, and there is no shortage of tasty pigeons, seagulls, and ducks inhabiting the urban jungle. And I think because the birds were the original birds, their ancestors, the ones that are out now, were capped bred in, in uh, man-made facilities. They're just, you know, that's what they grew up with. So it's natural. While unconventional, this newfound urban way of living has helped falcons come back from the brink. Peregrine numbers have recovered immensely from their low point in the 70s. And while they haven't quite reached their historic numbers, they're on their way and are still considered to be a conservation success story.
But while Peregrine's moving into our cities and university campuses has been good for the Falcons, in a way this also benefits us. Obviously, they fill an ecological role, helping to control the numbers of urban pigeons and gulls, but there's more to it than that. Whenever you have a chance to actually see something like that, I mean, it's not possible for us to see polar bears wandering around campus or grizzly bears or mountain lions or anything. They're all of these sort of top predators, but with a peregrine falcon, you can actually see it right here. And sometimes you can you know, come across the leftovers from what it, it ate for that morning or that evening and appreciate that you've got one of these sorts of very endangered um, organisms that was really endangered because of human activity. And then yet it's come back in part through the actions of people like John Campbell and the efforts of all sorts of people all over the world. So every time you're watching, for me, it's amazing just to see all these different things. You have to appreciate the natural behaviors that you're watching in a very unnatural place on top of a building. In the middle of a university. In the middle of a university in a city of a million people. And the live stream has only made this appreciation deeper, connecting people to these birds in a way that would have been impossible even a decade ago. You only need to take a glance at the stream's chat to see how deep this connection really is. The way viewers talk about these birds, the language that they use, they're not just casual observers, they're fans, they're admirers, that genuinely care about these animals. At times, Irene can hardly believe it. People just stop me sometimes to say, you know, they'll stop me and ask me about the falcons. And I mean, I'm not that, you know, I'm just a lay person, but there's definitely more interest just because they see them on camera and, you know, they feel that they get to know them. And when the camera went down a few weeks ago, um, the computer crashed actually. And we were three days without any streaming and I had phone calls and emails, people wanting to send me computers and laptops and brand new things. and <laughs> It was just amazing. John, on the other hand, expected nothing less. I'm not surprised because they are iconic and, and very interesting and fascinating birds. And uh, obviously people are interested and uh, will pay attention to their welfare and be more aware of nature in general. I think that's one of the things we live in an urban environment more and more and we don't come in contact with animals and nature nearly as much. The more you have that, the better. And of course, the more likely the birds are likely to survive if people are watching after them. This might be the true power of watching animals, even if it is through a computer screen. Through observing these animals, their struggles, their successes, through moments of despair and moments of sheer joy, we are connected. Not only with the animals we're watching, but also with nature as a whole. Observing nature makes us care more, it makes us do more. It has the power to turn each and every one of us into a defender of the natural world, ensuring a place in our future for animals like Callie and Gary and their yearly brood of hungry mouths.
And there's no better example of the power of observing animals than Irene herself. She wasn't, and still isn't, really what you'd call a bird person. I always had an interest, you know, in all, all animals and birds. And I mean, I'm not a birder or anything like that. I don't go searching for them. But every year, when the juvenile falcons are first fledging, she's there for them. Because if they land on the ground, you know, they, can, they, ha- they can't get back up. And if she loses track of one of the birds, she leaps into action going far out of her way to ensure their safety. Last year I came down on a Saturday, I think it was, when one had fledged and we didn't know where it had gone and I couldn't find it. And then I finally found it and then there was a massive thunderstorm, you know, the skies just opened up um, and we found it just wandering around next to the TFDL <laughs> by the loading dock. So campus security came and they actually contacted Warren and he, he came and put it back on a lower roof somewhere and it was fine after that. And Irene does this, every year, standing guard over Callie and Gary's bouncing baby birds. If this is the power that observing nature can have, that a simple live stream can have, to turn a humble library officer into the guardian angel of generations of peregrine falcons, well, well then maybe we should start live streaming more animals. And maybe we should all spend just a little bit more time watching them, both online and off. My name is Sean Willett, and this has been The Red List. If you want to learn more about Callie and Gary, you should visit ucalgary.ca slash peregrine underscore falcon. If you want to contribute to peregrine falcon conservation efforts, you should donate your time or money to your local wildlife rescue and rehabilitation center. They need it. This show is brought to you by CJSW 90.9 FM, Calgary's independent radio station. You can find this show and many more CJSW podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CJSW.com. Our theme song is Deuteronomy 210 by The Mountain Goats. And the rest of the music was provided by Jazzar off of freemusicarchive.org. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep watching.